This week in Retronauts, grab your gun and turtleneck, spy guy. advent of Metal Gear, the idea of spy games has become synonymous with stealth games. A real spy sneaks, after all. But tactical stealth action and classic 80s arcade quarter munching don't really jive. You're never going to hit your optimal three-minute quarter drops if your players are sneaking around, right? So in the 80s, spy game basically meant shooter action game with slightly less shooting than usual. The difference between a military game and a spy game was the difference between, say, Ikari Warriors and Elevator Action. Both were pretty intense, bound to drain your wallet in no time flat, but the latter had a more deliberate pace with a considerably more limited hero. And perhaps the greatest entrance into this particular subgenre arrived in 1985, when Namco unleashed Rolling Thunder onto an unsuspecting public. understood apart from its peers for a number of reasons. For starters, it had a pretty unique aesthetic. Where other spy games of the era tended to gravitate around a contemporary Cold War vibe, probably best embodied by Cloak & Dagger, which arrived in the company of a theatrical Cold War spy thriller, Rolling Thunder reached back into the 60s and 70s for a retro feel. Protagonist Albatross was basically Steve McQueen, the actor, not the director. Tall and lanky, wearing a shoulder holster over his turtleneck sweater, with a broad combat stance that showed off his groovy flare trousers to maximum effect. And the soundtrack fit the look perfectly, a 
funky FM synthesis groove that sounded like Lalo Schifrin serenading a lullaby. Thunder was missing to go full-on bullet was a crazy car chase through the streets of San Francisco. But you know, I played it once on a handheld system while riding a cable car, so maybe that's good enough. Steve McQueen genre flicks definitely were not your typical 80s arcade game subject matter, but that wasn't all that made Rolling Thunder unique. As rooted in gritty's 60 cop dramas as its protagonist was, the game's villains were every bit as far out and fanciful as Albatross was grounded. For starters, Geldra, the evil organization Albatross did battle with, was run by a guy named Mabu, not to be mistaken for Star Wars prequel planet Naboo. Mabu basically looked like a lumpier version of Piccolo from Dragon Ball for no clearly explained reason. Equally mysterious were the costumes his minions wore. The Gelder army's apparel appeared to be military uniforms of some sort, but bizarre and outlandish ones. Slathered in neon color schemes, Mabu's legions almost appeared to be wearing radiation hazmat suits, a theme reinforced by their baggy masks. Unfortunately, these masks created a secondary association, at least for American gamers, and probably not an intended one. Essentially pillowcases with eye holes cut out, the enemy army bore an unfortunate resemblance to Dayglow Ku Klux Klan members. It's practically a given that the KKK was the furthest thing from the game designers' minds, awareness of American racists is pretty low in Japan, although Geldred does do a lot of Nazi saluting, so who knows? But really, more likely, Namco's designers were drawing on a long-standing tradition of hooded villains dating back to Republic serials of the 1940s, and is freshly revisited as the G.I. Joe toy line in comics, which was reaching the peak of its global popularity right as Rolling Thunder hit the arcades. It seems safe to assume that the likes of Cobra Commander had more influence on Rolling Thunder than racial lynchings in the American South. Then again, it's not like Mabu's guys were precisely upstanding citizens. The entirety of their plot appeared not to be global conquest, but rather the abduction, torture, and disrobing of Albatross's fellow WCPO agent, Leela. Progressive media this ain't, but that one splash of recidivism is really the only dark mark against Rolling Thunder. Well, that and its crazy difficulty level.
further you venture into Mubu's lair, the more daunting the enemies become. Those neon clansmen may seem pretty strange, but they have nothing on the monsters that come in later stages. Flying Batmen, guys made of fire, and of course Mabu himself. An albatross, I'm sorry to say, is a terribly fragile man. He has a life bar, yes, but it's a lie. A single bullet from his enemies will fell him, and mere collisions with bad guys are nearly as deadly. Even though his health meter is broken into 8 segments, the least damage Albatross can take from a single mishap is 4 blocks. He crumples like wet paper if he merely brushes a bad guy twice. About all you have going for you is the fact that enemies are completely brain dead, either attacking with simple patterns or milling about aimlessly. Admittedly, their randomness can cause issues too, as it makes them unpredictable and tends to result in them leaping up into Albatross without warning. On the plus side, there's a definite hierarchy to the enemy ranks. Mabu thoughtfully decked out his legions in color-coded uniforms, each according to his abilities. There's order to the garish chaos of Mabu's minions. The hideously clashing apparel of each bad guy designates his combat skills. The dudes in green and blue with magenta masks just wander around and try to punch Albatross, while the ones in yellow masks and gloves will take pot shots at him. As for Albatross, he basically has two skills, cracking off a shot with his trusty pistol and leaping high into the air. Mabu's base contains plenty of platforms for you to navigate, and you can leap from one level to the next as needed. Though, of course, so can the enemy. Albatross can also duck out of the way of enemy fire, and even more importantly, he can duck into doorways. Popping into a door takes you out of danger for as long as you remain hidden, though it's a bad idea to remain hidden too long as enemies aren't entirely stupid and will mill about outside your hiding place if you let them, making it impossible to emerge safely. The real advantage of doors is that occasionally one will contain a submachine gun, which gives Albatross limited rapid-fire capabilities. This lasts only for as long as the SMG's magazines do, or until you die, at which point you revert to your standard pistol. tough game, and not always a fair one, but it works. A big part of its appeal comes from its animation, which was absolutely fantastic for its time. Albatross's lean frame and athletic combat capabilities are complemented by smooth, fluid motion. He moves with absolute grace, especially when leaping over banisters to lower levels of the Geldru base. And then of course there's that soundtrack. clearly struck on a good thing with Rolling Thunder, the following year Sega published the curiously similar Shinobi, and Capcom blatantly ripped off the game a few years after that with codename Viper. Unfortunately, Rolling Thunder's sequels never quite hit the mark. They weren't bad, but they lacked the perfect synthesis of style and design that the original possessed. Rolling Thunder 2 earned points by making Leela the main protagonist, relegating Albatross to the Player 2 role, 
but it shifted themes from 60s action manga to 80s action flick, much to the game's detriment. Where the original stood out wonderfully in arcades, Rolling Thunder 2 vanished into a sea of generic 80s aesthetics. Stylistically, Albatross went from Steve McQueen to Roger Moore, a tragic downgrade if ever there was one. And Leela, in her tight pants and cleavage-bearing top, looks for all the world like Peggy Bundy, which might be some sort of prescient future-facing Katie Siegel reference, but probably is just a poor costuming choice for the character. Rolling Thunder 2 also abandoned the groovy music of its predecessor in favor of what, in its worst moments, sounded like some sort of robot calypso. terrible game at all, and in fact, it might be technically better than its predecessor. It doesn't require playing through an unreasonably difficult Ghost and Goblin-style second loop to earn the true ending, for one thing, but it lacks the special magic that made the original so entertaining. The Genesis-exclusive third and final game in the series, Rolling Thunder 3, saw Namco attempting to broaden the scope of the play mechanics to reflect the changing nature of action games, and it's also not a bad game. But at this point, it hardly feels like Rolling Thunder anymore, instead coming off as a fairly generic 16-bit platform shooter. Thunder was one of those games that worked because of a fortuitous overlap of style, mechanics, and timing. It was lightning in a bottle. Namco never really managed to recapture it, and honestly, it's probably for the best that the series was left to fade away. The arcade version of Rolling Thunder didn't include any credits, so there's no record that I can find of the minds behind its creation. My requests to Namco PR over the years to get in touch with Rolling Thunder's designer ultimately dead-ended when I was told he was still with the company, but had become its president and had more pressing concerns than dealing with enthusiast press asking about some stupid old game from 30 years ago. And hey, fair enough. I just think it's great that the man responsible for creating one of the most thrilling arcade games of 1985 ended up moving so far through the ranks. Sometimes, talent rises to the top.
Retronauts, I'm Jeremy Parrish. We'll be back next week with a massive anniversary tribute to one of the most important games ever. Thanks for listening and for supporting the show. You can find Retronauts at usgamer.net and retronauts.com on iTunes and, of course, on various and sundry forms of social media. Remember, that's Retronauts as in Astronauts, not Retronauts as in Dreadnoughts. And finally, this show is made possible through supporters like you via Patreon. That's patreon.com slash retronauts. You dig the podcast? Help us make it. Thanks again. <laughs>